0: Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you are in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. So one thing that's really blessed me uh, last, last week is I had two people, I won't mention their names, but two people who didn't talk to each other. <laughs> that told me a special, something that was uh, ministered in the word that was being taught last week on Tuesday evening that really made a big difference in their, in their life. And um, I, I don't know, um, sometimes I wonder on Tuesday evenings why we don't have more people here. But I know people watch by video, I know it's a long ways away and people work, I'm not saying that in any form of condemnation, but I personally just really love this teaching, <laughs> and I personally just really get so much out of it, so I just thank the Lord for His Word and uh, for the things the Holy Spirit uh, speaks to us. Okay, so I want you to open up Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, and I hope that we're going to get through uh, verse 11 of chapter 5 through verse 12 of chapter 6, so Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll begin with verse 11. And this is a continuation of last week, so there's notes for this week there and there's notes from last week there in case you needed those. And I'll just repeat what we looked at last week, that this is the, the third main argument being made in uh, the uh, letter to the, to the Hebrews in this epistle. And we're just looking at part one of this third argument and we're looking at like part 1B <laughs> today because we looked at part 1a last week, um, and we'll be talking, if you'll remember, we introduced Melchizedek just very briefly last week, and there'll be somewhat more said about him this evening, and then we'll go into the full teaching that's made in, in this uh, section of Hebrews. But this is the fourth section, and we're talking about how Christ is superior to the priests of to the priests of Aaron, to the Levitical priests, and to the high priests that we read about in the Old Testament. So the third argument is building on Christ's superiority to Moses. Jesus is now shown from Scripture to be superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites established by the law that was given through Moses. Jesus is shown to be the perfect and eternal high priest, able to truly save all who obey him a priest of a different order, not of a Levitical order, but of a different order after the order of Melchizedek. So what we're going to be looking at this evening is actually a passage of Scripture that troubles many people. And it is not an easy passage of Scripture to understand if you don't understand it in the context in which it is written. It's actually a passage of Scripture that scares a lot of people. And it's so scary that a lot of people just choose just not to read it or just just skip over it but before we even get started in that, I want to remind you that the purpose of this letter is not to scare people. The purpose of this letter is to challenge them to encourage them and to put the fear of God in them but when you put the fear of God in them that's not the same as scaring people okay in the sense of there's no hope for you but to put the kind of fear in you that causes you to realize, you know, like a coach does, or like a good parent does in a certain moment in time, that they put that fear of God into you, so to speak, because they actually believe that you can do it. They actually believe that you're better than what you've been showing so far. So we have to remember that as, as we go into this, okay? And when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, which we'll get to in a few minutes, there's going to be a therefore, and you remember I talked to you about there's several therefores throughout the book that build one upon the other. They're different Greek words. They're almost, I think in my particular version, New American Standard, every place they're translated, therefore. In chapter six, verse one, it's the Greek word dio, which is, it it just would probably more technically be in English wherefore, but there's not a real big difference between therefore and wherefore. And it has the uh, meaning of for this reason or because of this. So however you look at it, It's a challenge point in the passage where you're supposed to stop and realize that if all this that we've said before is true, then this is what needs to be true in your life. This is how you need to act. It's a conclusion that calls us to action, and this is the third great conclusion that calls us to action in the book. So let's look at chapter 5, and let's read verses 11 through 14 to begin with. It says, concerning him, or concerning this, uh, literally, but it's concerning him because it's talking about Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So before we move on, let's look at this passage of Scripture. To begin with, the writer is saying that there is a great deal of things that I would like to tell you about Melchizedek in relationship to Christ. But it's not easy for me to explain these things to you. Uh, Literally, it says, this is difficult to interpret with words. This is difficult to interpret with words. And what it means is not that for me, it's difficult to tell you about it. What it means is that for you, it's difficult for you to hear about it. It's difficult for you to properly interpret what I want to tell you. Now, a lot is going to be told to us uh, after this passage of Scripture. But do you know, can you just sense the, the heart of the Holy Spirit in our lives? I don't know if you've ever sensed this, but I, I think it's a continual sensing on the inside of me that challenges me to want to grow in Christ that I know that there's more that God wants to reveal to me. I know that there's more he wants to trust me with. And I'm not ready for that. But he's ready for that. And he is saying, you need to, to get ready. So what's being said here is that what I will te- tell you about Melchizedek, if I don't warn you about this first, and what I would like to tell you, that you will misinterpret it when I tell it to you. When we tell this to you, you will misinterpret it. And this is not because it's complicated. It's complicated. It's not because it's, it's hard to understand. It is because you are dull of hearing, is, is what is said here. So the word dull in the Greek, it means that you are sluggish, that you are lazy. It, it means that you are obtuse. If you know what that means, that means you're dumb, <laughs> okay? It means you're lazy, you're sluggish, you're a bad student, that you have not prepared yourself to hear this. You should be ready to hear this, but you're not ready to hear this. So it's, it's important to interpret this properly and understand that what's being said is not that the teaching about Melchizedek is so difficult or that anything in the Bible is so difficult, but that because you are dull of hearing, because you're not a good student of the word of God. Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed. And the Word of God cannot be approached with a lazy attitude. The Word of God cannot be approached sluggishly. It takes time and it takes effort to study the Word of God. But that doesn't mean that it's difficult to understand. It's just like a a, a mine that is inexhaustible. And if you want to mine out of the mine, dig up out of the mine what God has for you, then you have to to, to work at it to, to receive what it is that he has for us and that's just simply called faith in john chapter 8 verse 43 jesus said why do you not understand what i am saying it is because you cannot hear my word because you're sluggish because you're lazy because your spiritual ear is closed you cannot hear my word and so you do not understand what i'm saying if, if you can remember a time in your life when you read the words of Jesus for the first time or tried to read the Sermon on the Mount or something like that, it's super simple but really hard to understand. But as you grow in Christ, you begin to realize, no, this is actually really easy to understand. It's not so complicated. When we interpret the Word of God at any level, whatever level you feel like you are in interpreting the Word of God or in studying the Word of God, The simplest meaning, the most obvious meaning, is what you should go with because there's not anything difficult to understand in the Scripture. Now, if you go with the simplest meaning and the most obvious meaning, you might think, well, that doesn't make sense to me because that doesn't work in my culture. That doesn't work where I live. I've never heard anybody say that before. But before you uh, decide that this must be a metaphor, this just must be a symbol, that this isn't really important for me. Before you decide that, go with this. This is, this is what it means, okay? And then as you put it together with other parts of Scripture and you receive the Word of God in the context of the entire Scripture, you begin to see some other things and understand some other things. You know, like you can look at the dietary laws of the, of the Old Testament. And I'm telling you, according to those dietary laws, if you're eating shrimp, you're sinning, because you're not allowed to eat shrimp. You know, if you ate bacon, that's a sin, because you're not allowed to eat bacon. And if you don't look at anything else in Scripture, you're going to think, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Or you might get super re- legalistic about it and say that I'm not going to eat bacon in- anymore because it says not to eat pork. Now, from a health standpoint, maybe it's a good idea for you not to eat pork. It's not the healthiest meat in the world, but if you like pork... When we come over to the Old Testament, there's plenty of testimony and witnesses that um, that particular law does not apply to those who are not uh, 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 in in Judaism. And yet those like Paul and Peter who were in Judaism throughout their life, they kept those kosher laws because that's how they were raised. And they did it for the sake of conscience. So I'm not going to teach on that tonight, but I'm just giving you an example of how you can misinterpret the scripture if you don't approach the scripture and, and receive it in, in the, from the alpha to the omega, from the beginning to the end, with all that, that is, is in there. And so the role of a teacher, the role of a pastor is exceedingly important in the life of, of a Christian. Remember that when the scripture was written, it was not written so that you would have a person, it was not assumed that you would have a personal copy that you could read by your, by your you know, in, in your bed every evening or morning. And definitely not that you would have it on your phone. It was written to be read out loud uh, in front of the congregation and to be studied and to be copied and to be memorized. You know, this, this is how it was written. And when you go back to those old methods, it actually works really well in your life. I made a habit a long time ago in my life when I was still a teenager, if I'm alone and I'm reading the Word of God, almost always I read it out loud. And, 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 it, and it just I don't know why, I just made that, that habit of wanting to preach the Word of God to myself, of speaking it and, and hearing it. You know, if you're reading some really good novel or something like that, you know how easy it is to go through about five or six pages and all of a sudden you realize, I have no idea what I just read <laughs> because your mind's wandering, you're reading, you know, and stuff like that. And the same thing can, can happen with the Bible. So you have to study the Word of God. So the writers of Hebrew are saying here that you have become sluggish, lazy, obtuse. You've become a very poor student of the Word of God. It does not say that you've always been this way. It's talking about what's happened to you. And you need to change. You need to get, to get back uh, to this. So this is a warning that's being given to them, and it's going to get real severe here in chapter 6, to prepare them so that they can hear what's going to be said next about Melchizedek, which we'll get to next week. Um, because what's going to be said is something of, of vast theological importance for the understanding of Jesus as Messiah of Jesus Christ and they need to be prepared for that. We read here about the milk and about the meat, about being uh, infants and uh, being grown-ups. Well, you know that every person to whom this is being written, just like every person in this room this evening, is an adult, okay? And so this is not talking about physical maturity, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. It's talking about spiritual maturity. And so there's a principle that physical maturity is worthless before God if it's not accompanied by corresponding spiritual maturity. And you can apply that to a church. It's worthless before God if the church has 10,000 members in it, and you know 10,000 people come together uh, every single Sunday, and there's huge offerings and a beautiful building and all these kinds of things, if that's not accompanied with spiritual maturity. Because not that God's against church growth and big churches and and, and nice buildings and everything like, like that. But it's really easy to, get, to lose our spiritual maturity when we're focused on physical maturity, when we're focused on church, gro- church growth projects, on thing, you know, things that we should be doing and that are important uh, to do. You know. But it's, it's easy to think ourselves that like, we've arrived, but we've lost the spiritual maturity. In other words, like it says to the church in Laodicea, You think you're rich, but you're poor. (laughs) You know, you think you're healthy, but you're really sick. And you you should be better if you would be cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. So the writer says to them, after all this time, you should be teachers. But the fact is that you still need to be taught. That should be a challenge for every single one of us. I don't know how much time all this time is, but there comes a point in a Christian's life when he needs to begin to disciple other people. And if you don't disciple other people, then you stop growing yourself. And that doesn't mean you have to go find, you know, we talk about mentors, and it doesn't mean you have to go find some stranger and become his official mentor or shepherd or something like that. I promise you, there's someone right next to you, you know, a family member, a friend, somebody... That you don't have to even go look for to begin to be uh, to disciple them, to teach them, to earn their trust, and speak the word of God uh, in, into their life, and to be an example uh, for them. And as you disciple others, then you grow as a disciple also. So they're not teaching others; they're just sitting there like little baby birds in a nest, and like drop it in our mouth, and that's that's all that they want. And so that, that means that you're not spiritually mature. And that means you're not ready to understand the things that God wants to give you. So it talks here about the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Well, the oracles oracles just means what God is speaking, what, what He has spoken. So the elementary principles of God's Word. These elementary principles are contained in the Old Testament, and I didn't make this phrase up. It's a famous phrase. <laughs> they are contained in the Old Testament, but they are explained in the New Testament. They are contained in the Old Testament, but explained in the New Testament. Again, at the time that Hebrews is written, most of these people, perhaps there's some part of uh, you know, Paul's writings and definitely of Paul's writings that they would have read in their church. But they don't have a complete New Testament there with them. But what they do have is a complete Old Testament and they have teachers, pastors, evangelists, apostles and and prophets that are explaining these things, and this is becoming the the New Testament. Well, we have them both. It's contained in the Old Testament. It's explained in the New Testament. And these are the elementary principles of, of God's Word. But it's said here that these elementary principles, they're like milk for infants, like milk for little babies that have not been weaned yet, like a mother's milk. Talked a little bit about that on Sunday. Um, And so what happens if a baby really receives uh, his mother's milk? Well, he grows, right? And over time, uh, you begin to prepare solid food for him. But that solid food in the beginning is all mashed up and kind of gross, and, you know, the banana gerber I still kind of like. but. (laughs) But basically, it, it's not something that grown-ups like. It's like mashed-up pudding. They turn green beans into some nasty puree, right, and all that kind of stuff. But a baby just loves that, you know, because this is some kind of solid food that's not just milk. And then you slowly begin to give them solid food. Well, some people do it faster. I remember, was that Gabriel, wasn't it, that was eating rare uh, prime rib when I think it was like two or something, It was like <laughs> Nine months. Okay, there you go. As soon as he had some teeth, he was chewing up that prime rib. So, but in any case, you understand the the analogy here—that at a certain point, you begin to give them solid food. Well, here's here's an important thing to notice here: is it's not just saying that you're just stuck on mother's milk. What it's saying is you actually have never really received everything that the Word of God wants to give you. Because if you had received the mother's milk, if you had become founded in the elementary principles of God's word, well, let's just take one really simple one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you never really receive that word and begin to embody that into your life, you're not going to be ready to hear about Melchizedek. There's no point in you hearing Melchizedek about Melchizedek, because you can't even take in the very most basic principles of God's word. And the milk of God's word actually never goes away in our lives. Now, uh, probably a, a lot of you don't drink milk anymore. Well, our milk isn't exactly like milk is supposed to be, is it? Uh, but you know, in their culture, and then that time, and in an ancient time, you would continue to use milk, drink milk throughout your life. And in case you didn't know, they didn't have refrigerators. So you very rarely drank fresh milk. You'd drink sour milk products that are probiotics and all these things that we spend a lot of money for. And it was very healthy. The milk continues to be healthy. The milk is essential to your spiritual diet. You don't throw the milk away, but you add to the milk the solid food that causes your muscles to grow spiritually. And you grow up in, in, in Christ. And so that's what's being said, is you actually have never received this milk, which would cause you to grow. But you're not growing, and you do not have the ability to eat the solid food of the word of righteousness, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are delivering to you, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, pastors, and teachers of the New Testament. Because the New Testament is designed to cause us to grow. In many ways, not completely, but in many ways if you study the New Testament, the the gospels are more milky, okay? They're the elementary principles of our salvation, of our eternal life, you know, without this we're not born again. Without this we cannot grow at all and we never dispense with that. You know, we always need that in our lives. But when we come to the epistles, the parts that are harder for us to read, <laughs> you get into some really deep things that are not hard to understand, but without studying and preparing ourselves, we don't grow. So they're more solid food because they're explaining what is contained in the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And so that's how, how we grow. And we grow in, then in the word of righteousness. So if we can eat and digest healthy food, then that causes us to grow. But to eat and digest healthy food spiritually, just like it is uh, in the physical world. So if you want to eat healthy food in the physical world, what do you have to do? You have to work at it, right? If you want to eat junk food, that's real easy. You just go get in that little car line at McDonald's every day and get all you want. They'll, they'll do the work for you, and it doesn't take them very much work either. It's a conveyor belt, frozen patties, psh, 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 every, everything's done. But if you want to eat healthy, you know, you've got to grow a garden, you've got to find the right food, you've got to prepare recipes, you know, it's a lot of work to eat healthy. It's a lot of work to feed a family healthy food. For a mom, for a grandma, for anybody, to take care of the health of a family is, is a lot of work. Well, it's the same thing in the spiritual world. It will not just happen without effort and without training. It says here, but solid food, verse 14, is for the mature, the the ones that are growing up, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So we learn by practice to discern, to understand the difference between junk food that makes us sick and healthy food that causes us to grow up in Christ. Junk food is false teaching. Junk food is empty, fluffy teaching that, oh, that's just such a wonderful sermon, and then you go home and it's all gone. It's just completely gone. And I don't know about you, but if I do eat a McDonald's meal, for some reason, I go home, and if I get on the scales, I've gained weight, but I'm still hungry. It doesn't really, you still feel hungry after you eat junk food. And and all you feel is, I just need more junk food. And it's designed like that. It's like, you know, salt, uh, salty food at a restaurant. So you just keep buying drinks. You know, that, that's false and empty teaching. But you don't know the difference. You know, take a child. A child doesn't know the difference between junk food and healthy food. And he does not want healthy food if he's ever had junk food. If he only had healthy food, and that's all he ever had, then he'd be fine with it but you know he hasn't, he's gone to McDonald's, he's had the fries, he's had the burgers, you know, he's had these different things, and he wants something that tastes like that, because it triggers things in his brain, you know, how all that stuff works, and he's like, "Whoo! this is really good. You know, if he's had Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, he wants Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and you know, he doesn't know the difference between the junk food and the healthy food, so he has a teacher, mama. And mama teaches or grandma or somebody, right? And, and he doesn't like what they're teaching. But when he grows up, he begins to realize, hey, I need to, if it's a guy, man, I guess girls do too. Yeah, sure girls do too. But I need to lift weights, you know, or I need to exercise. You know, he starts getting a little bit more concerned about what his body looks like and what he's physically able to do. And he realizes, he begins to realize I need to eat something healthy, and then when he gets to be 50-something, he realizes, well, man, I really gotta eat healthy food, I gotta take care of myself, I, gotta, I still got a lot left to do on this, in this life, and you, you understand what I'm saying? As you mature, you begin to understand, and you actually begin, by practice, I'm talking about in the physical world, just an example, it's an example of the spiritual world, you begin, to by practice, to love the healthy food, right? And by practice, you begin to realize, I actually don't ever want to go to McDonald's again the rest of my life. I don't like that stuff anymore. I don't even know why I used to like it. That's that's what happens. And so the same thing happens spiritually when we approach the Word of God and we receive, and again, the milk is not the junk food. That's not what we're saying. You don't ever throw the milk out. The junk food is the false teaching that they were enduring. The junk food is the Pressure of the world to conform to the world that they were enduring, the philosophies of the world, and they begin, as you grow in the Lord, you begin to hate those things. And you see stuff on TV, and you're just like, I don't, I don't know why I ever liked that movie. I just don't like it. And it's not because it is necessarily evil or anything like that. It's just empty. It's just a waste of my time that there's something better for me to to use my life for. So that's what's being said here. If you will focus on the milk and then move on to the solid meat, then you will grow up in the word of righteousness. You will grow up in Christ Jesus. So now let's go to chapter 6 and begin the scary part. Verse 1. So let's read verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching... About the Christ, about the Messiah, let us press on to maturity. So, this is the elementary teaching about the Messiah. The elementary teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Such an elementary teaching that the vast majority of people in the world today still have never even received that. But, this is the elementary teaching. We never dispense with it. We never throw it away. It lays at the foundation of everything in our lives. But let us leave the elementary teaching about the Christ. Let's graduate from first grade and move on to second grade. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. So here come the elementary principles that we see in Scripture. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith for God of instructions about of instruction about washings or baptisms literally and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and this we will do if God permits so we start with the word therefore because this is true because this is self-evident because this is obvious this instruction about the milk and the meat everything we've been saying let us be a people who move on from the elementary teachings of Christ. We don't lose them, but we move on from them. It's like the growth of a human body. From conception, you know, when, uh, it, as I heard at the, uh, from Nick from Life Choices not that long ago when he was talking about this, within the first 24 hours, the entire DNA and, and maybe earlier, but they can prove that the DNA, the entire program of a person's life is already there in in conception. So from the moment of conception, everything is already there. But we have to grow it. So when we leave the elementary principles, it doesn't mean we lose them or leave them behind. They're on the inside of us, they're just growing. This is the seed that 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 is growing there. So let us move on from there and press on. So the words press on, uh, here in verse 1 in the Greek, they literally mean let us be carried over. Let us be carried over. And that's kind of important, because to be carried over, to be carried is a passive verb, to press on is an active verb. It's something I do. If I am being carried, it's something that is being done to me. So we understand in this that we don't carry ourselves on into maturity. Jesus said, there's nothing you can do to even add one inch to your height. You don't even know the hairs that are on your head. No child grows up because he tries to grow up. That's legalism. We're trying to grow up in Christ. We're trying to force this thing to happen. Just be yourself. And if you will eat the word of God and receive the word of God, one day you're going to wake up, go stand next to that wall where dad measured you with that little yardstick, right? And you're going to realize, wow, I've grown five inches, you know, and you don't feel it. You don't feel that you're growing or these shoes are hurting mom. And well, that's because they don't fit you anymore. How did that happen? Because you ate healthy food, because you grow up, because that's programmed into your DNA. We have Jesus Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are programmed to grow. We are programmed to have life and, and, and life that's abundant. And so all we have to do is get with the program and receive the word of God that he's serving to us. We don't even uh, really have to uh, uh, work that hard for it, to be honest. I talked about we have to be diligent and study, but that's the study part. If you've ever been the teacher part, that's way harder than the, than the student part. It's a whole lot of work, and everything is being prepared for us by God. And and by the Holy Spirit. And he wants to help us. He wants to help us to grow. If we'll just start by cracking this book open and reading this. And being students of the Word of God. So, how do we press on to maturity? Well, we do that by not laying over and over again the same foundation that we already have. You know, how stupid it is if a person is fixing all the time stuff that's not broken. Have you ever done that with a car or with something else, boy, it's a really bad idea. It just ends up really not working out well. You know, or you put a foundation down for a house, and you're ready to build that house, and you know it's going to work perfectly. Uh, you know, you've got experts there that say this is going to work, but you're like, oh, man, I just don't really like the color of that block right there, and you let's just tear up the whole foundation and start over again. No, you just don't do that, okay? And that's what's being said here. Stop spinning your wheels in one place. Stop uh, laying again, over and over again, the foundation that we already have. And here's the foundation, the elementary foundation. The first one is repentance from dead works. That's not to say that repentance should not be an ongoing part of your life, because it is. When we sin, we confess our sin before the Father. But to repent from dead works is really talking about becoming a Christian, really being born again, that you've turned away from the dead works of this world and you're following after Christ. And when I was growing up, uh, we would have these yearly revivals in in our Baptist church. And when we had them, I would always feel guilty because they would always press you, press you, come forward and pray the sinner's prayer. And they would say, if you do not remember the exact day and the exact hour and the exact place where you were, when you prayed to receive Jesus, then you are probably not saved, so you need to come forward. <laughs> and I would always be like, oh, Jesus, I don't remember when I accepted you. And I never stopped to think, well, I'm talking to Jesus. I know I, that he's hearing me, but I'm telling him, I don't really know you because it happened when I was like four years old or something. I do remember when I was baptized. It's written down in my Bible. you know. And, and, and yet, you know what? Thank God. Something on the inside of me was always able to overcome that. I never went forward for that thing. But I always felt it. Like, I've got to go forward. I've got to do this. So if we're, and that's a trap that Satan tries to get people into. That when you, you truly have repented from dead works, and you're following after the Lord in your life, just pick yourself up and keep going. If you sin, confess your sin before the Father and, and, and keep going. The second one is faith towards, toward God. Trusting God, believing in God. The third one says teachings, uh, literally it's in the plural, teachings about baptisms. Teachings, so one of them is about baptism, and that's in the plural, but I'm not going to spend the time to talk about why that is. There are actually many baptisms in the Scripture, but there's at least two in the New Testament, baptism in water, the baptism for repentance, and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we'll stick with those two. Teachings about laying on of hands, Wow, that's something elementary. I mean, I went to church for 20-something years and never saw anybody lay hands on anybody except in those special meetings where they were uh, installing or anointing new deacons or something like that. But laying on of hands, Jesus said, these signs shall follow those who believe on my name. And one of those signs is they'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And there's a lot of teaching about laying on of hands. In the New Testament, one of the teachings about laying of hands is Paul tells Timothy, don't lay hands on anybody suddenly. You might become a partaker in their sin. Don't just go around and throw out laying of hands. It's a great power. And don't cast your, your, your pearls before, before swine. Listen to the Holy Spirit, the teaching of laying on of hands, teaching of the resurrection of the dead, and teaching about eternal judgment. Now, I'm going to tell you something really strange. These are supposed to be just... just kind of is like a diagnosis of where the church is, okay? These are supposed to be the elementary principles, that we're supposed to move on from these things. Yet I will tell you that these basic things are the reasons most church divisions happen. These are the things everybody fights about. Is it pre-trib, post-trib, what kind of judgment? Is there really a hell? Well, you can't tell anybody that they might go to hell or something like that. God loves everybody. We argue about this stuff all the time. Laying on of hands? I could find in this, these two valleys plenty of Christians that would think you're absolutely nuts if you lay hands on somebody to, to pray for them. And, and So, I mean, these are supposed to be the elementary things. So we can see, the reason I'm saying that is we can see that we are actually in the same state as the Hebrews. And this epistle is written to us, and it's important for us to hear it. And so it says, we will move on from these things. We'll teach you more about these things if God permits. If God allows it, uh, then we're going to move on to some growth with solid food. Um, We're going to enter into God's rest, and we're going to learn about, about these things. But first, I have a warning for you. (laughs) That's what the writer is saying. So from verses 4 through 12, and we're going to just end with these verses. From verses 4 through 12, we have what I would say is the paramount or the biggest warning in this entire book. And it comes here in verse 4. Uh, It talks about the impending danger of apostasy. But it also gives us what I would say is the paramount hope of this book. That this scripture actually gives us a great assurance of salvation. And most people don't see it like that, but I hope that I can teach it to you in a way this evening that you'll be able to interpret it and understand how, how it should, should be understood. So let's just read verses 4 through 12. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened... And have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now you've got to agree the, the, the examples or the metaphors that are being used here are really easy for us to understand. The baby, milk, grow up, solid food metaphor And this one, that if you've got a piece of ground and you water it and you plant on it and you're a really good gardener, farmer, and you do everything you can for this piece of ground, and then it does not bring forth fruit, but it keeps bringing up weeds and thistles and, you know, they didn't have laser de-weeders like John Snyder has back then or, you know, Roundup or anything like this. It keeps bringing up these weeds and thistles, and no matter... With all your best efforts, that's all it does, or what are you going to do? You're going to curse that ground. You know, I don't know what they did, but I assume they would burn the ground completely or t- do something to make it so they can just start over completely or say, this plot is completely worthless. You know, for whatever reasons, it's just not farmable. We, we can't work here. So the, the metaphors are not difficult to understand at all, but, but it scares us when we read that. Because it sounds like it's saying that there is no assurance of our salvation. And that it could be that we would become so close to the Lord that we would be called partakers of the Holy Spirit. And this word partakers, we've already dealt with that word. It's that same word that means partners with the Holy Spirit. That we would be, uh, you know, uh, working together with the Holy Spirit. We'd be trusted partners and trusted friends. That we would taste the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, that's talking about signs, wonders, miracles, the moving of the Holy Spirit. And that we could be at that, what we consider super Christian level, and then we could fall so far that we would be called ones who crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So it sounds extremely scary, okay? And I'm not going to say that it's not. But like I said in the beginning, it's not supposed to put into us a fear that causes us to fail. It's supposed to put into us a fear of God that challenges us unto success. And I'll tell you right away, and we'll get to this in a minute, but I'll tell you right away, it would not even be written if God thought you were going to fail. Okay? This is written to Christians. I, I need to remind you of the atmosphere that we talked about in the introduction to, to Hebrews. Uh, that they were living in, they were under what, what, what I'm calling passive persecution because they weren't being killed yet, they weren't being stoned yet or thrown to the lions yet. That's going to come in a few years, a very active persecution. But the passive persecution, as I said to you then, in many ways is more dangerous than the active persecution because it's the pressure of society to conform to society. And their society was a religious society. Our society today is also a religious society. Just the religion is paganism, okay? That religion was Judaism. And they were being pressured to stop going to church, to stop calling themselves Christians, to stop talking about Jesus as Messiah. I mean, I guess it didn't matter what you thought in your heart, but don't talk about it anymore. And and go back to the synagogue. Then from the other hand, from the Roman side, they were being pressured throughout this whole period and on into the book of Revelation, they were being pressured to uh, once a year, minimum, once a year, they were supposed to go and they were supposed to worship the emperor as a god in the flesh on the earth. And all you had to do was go and pay a little tiny tax and say a little hallelujah emperor thing or something. It really wasn't something that was that big of a deal. But that is so much more dangerous than the being thrown to lions thing. Because when it's being thrown to lions, there's something almost heroic in there. You know, when it's being thrown to lions, it's so black and white, it's obvious now. You know, who's a Christian, who's not? But when it's just conform to a little ceremony and do what the government's telling you to do and do what the religious world around you is pressuring you you to do, when it's just shut your mouth and don't be a witness for Jesus, you can still believe that, but just don't talk about that. understand? Then, then that's so dangerous because what it actually does is it destroys our soul on the inside. And that's what was happening to them. That was the, the, what they lived in. So that's why this warning comes to them very strong. And I believe it's a very strong warning uh, for us also. So this is a case... Of a person who's walked in the superior, superiority the theme of Hebrews is superiority of the Christian life. And then he go, and, and he goes astray. Uh, where it says "goes astray," he literally falls by the wayside. And that Greek word is only in this one place in the scripture. He falls by the wayside. He just falls out of line. Uh, it says that he's enlightened. We see this word enlightened in chapter 10. I'm just going to go through a few of these verses in chapter 10 and in verse 32. It says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And then and, and it goes on from there. That's exactly what I'm talking to you about right now, the situation that they lived in. But they have been enlightened. They've been born again. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Uh, Look at John uh, chapter 4, John chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit later. So they've tasted the living water. They've tasted of the Holy Spirit. They've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that what we already talked about, they have been made partners together with the Holy Spirit in Christ. It says they've tasted the good word of God. Uh, in the Greek, there are several words for good. Okay? And this word is the word kalos. It's where we get, for example, calligraphy. And it means uh, calligraphy means beautiful writing. And the word kalos means something that's beautiful, that's fitting, that's appropriate for your life. It actually works in your life, okay? And the word word here is not logos, it's rima. So it's the spoken word of God, Um, the statements, the oracles of God. In other words, the teaching, the solid food. It says you have tasted of this beautiful, this appropriate, this fitting, good word of God and of the powers of the ages to come, the gifts of the Spirit. So, all of these people in the church, and I would say all the people in our church, have had at least a taste of these things. Notice the word taste. It says you've at least tasted this. You know, like, or it was Gabriel, actually, with that prime rib. You've tasted that prime rib. You know, maybe you don't remember it, but you've tasted it. And I saw you eat it. And I know that you've tasted of the Holy Spirit. You can't tell me that you don't know what the move of the Holy Spirit is. You can't tell me that you don't know how to hear the word of God. Because I remember a time in your life when you did hear the word of God, when God spoke to you and spoke through you to someone else, you know, that you know that this is real. You know that there is solid food for you. So they've all had a taste of what life in Christ is And all of us have had a taste of this life also. A lot of people wonder, what's it going to be like in eternity? Now, everybody wonders. I wonder about that. You know, what's it going to be like in eternity? What's going to be like when Jesus comes back? Well, I don't know everything. I know some things the Bible tells us, but we don't know everything. But since I've already tasted it, I know it's really good. Okay? So it has to just be even better than where we are right now. So go with me just for a minute over to chapter 10 of Hebrews and uh, uh, verse 26, okay? We'll get to this again later, but I'm just gonna read it right now real quick. It says, for if we go on sinning willfully, Hebrews ten twenty-six. if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer or more severe do you think the punishment, uh, the severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you can see it's just different words, but the same thing is being said or repeated here in in chapter 10. But I want you to understand that this is not referring to Christians who simply sin in the flesh. Because every single person in this room right now sins in the flesh. And John said in 1 John that if you say that you are without sin, then you make God out to be a liar. That if you'll confess your sin, then he is faithful, he's just, he will forgive you of your sin, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So when we take this in the context of the scripture, it's not talking about just Simple sin in the flesh, things we struggle with as we are growing, okay? Because remember, the whole context is we're growing up. But it's talking specifically about those who betray Christ. They betray Christ. In fact, if you um, uh, go back just two verses, or just one verse, the verse right before, it's talking about forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. It's talking about people who betray the church, who betray Jesus Christ, and they betray his body, the church. These are people who, like in the story of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in uh, the book of Daniel, they bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that I've been talking about, the pressure of that society that they've had. And they are being warned that if you don't stop going to those yearly emperor worship things, (laughs) things, <laughs> you don't understand what that's doing to your soul. You don't understand how living that lie, you understand? It's not just, oh, that's demonic. Well, yes, it's demonic, okay? But, so, but, but what's really demonic here is you're living a lie. You're pretending like you're somebody that you're not, and you know it on the inside. You know that you belong to Christ, and you cannot just keep living that lie And expect it not to destroy your soul on the inside. Because it will destroy you. And so they're being warned about this. These are people who betray Christ. They bow to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Let me just give you a, a few other verses about this. In Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And in verse 32, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So these are people who deny Christ. But again, I can tell you right away, that doesn't mean that if you denied Christ once, that you're lost. Because we've got the great example of Peter, who denies him three times, and he's still restored. This warning is not coming because you're, you've already failed and you're already lost. Okay? This isn't here to beat you over the head and tell you how wicked you are and how bad you are. This is here, like I said, to put the fear of God in you, to realize you cannot keep living this lie. You cannot keep denying Christ. You can, you've got to take a stand against the pressure of this world. You've got to take a stand that says, "I will not compromise," like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then in First John, in First John, and chapter five, in verse sixteen, it says, "If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, or a sin not unto death, literally, he shall ask, and God uh, will for him give life." Uh, to those who commit sin not unto death. But there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. And then he goes on. There's a lot of teaching on what I'm trying to say to you right now in 1 John. I just don't have time for it all. So he says that there is a sin unto death, and there is sin not unto death. And how do you know the difference? Well, it's, it's not really easy to explain, or maybe it's really easy to explain, but not really easy to interpret sometimes. But here's the difference. Peter and Judas. Judas' sin is unto death. And John says, I do not say that you should pray for this person because this person is lost. Now, I'm going to give a little lifeline to that person also in just a minute here because it's in here. But don't worry about that. If you feel that the Lord is leading you and the Holy Spirit speaking to you to pray for somebody that they would be restored into life, then I can promise you that the Holy Spirit still interested in their life or, or you wouldn't be where you are right now. You wouldn't sense that love of God for them. But there are people, and I can say to you honestly, that, that there are, are people that I, I could tell you, specifically I know that, that God has said to me, you stop praying for them. You just, it's like Paul said, you just turn that person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But even when Paul said that, he said, so that his soul might be saved. You know, sometimes by our prayers and by our kind of mamsy-pamsy attitude about God, I don't know how to say that, we actually hinder people from repenting. That we, we enable them to stay in that sin. Sometimes a person just needs to be cut off. And I don't know exactly where that point is. But you know in that life, that's Judas material. That's not Peter material. Okay? And so this betraying of Christ, this betraying of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this uh, being actually a traitor that turns the church over to Satan, that tries to turn other people over to Satan, that takes Jesus and with a kiss turns him over into the hands of Satan. When you meet with that, don't waste your time praying about that. Spend your time on people that can actually be saved and leave that person to God because only God can save them. And then in 2 Peter, in 2 Peter, in chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, and in verse 21, It says, notice all these scriptures I'm reading are from the New Testament. In verse 21 it says, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So these are those people The the big question is going to be, then maybe they weren't really saved. Okay, well, that's not what it says, okay? This is the truth. The plain meaning of this passage is they were really saved. They were enlightened. Only God judges those things. I've preached a lot of funerals, enough funerals for people that I don't think were saved, but I've never preached at their funeral. I know this person went to hell. And not just because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Because I don't know that. God is the judge. We are not the judge. But we can't keep spinning our wheels in these elementary things. We have to move on. You know, the, 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 the church cannot just keep laying over and over again the same foundations. We have to move on. You know, I did a little stint where I was a substitute teacher when I needed extra money in the Tulsa Public Schools. <laughs> that was a nightmare. And... Um, um, one of the things I realized is for teachers is, you know, I'd come in there, I, I always pick the math classes, I like math, I'd come in there, and I'd be all prepared, you know, and everything, and I, and I realized there's 40 people in here, 40 kids, two of them actually want to learn math, about 10 of them absolutely do not want to learn anything, and everybody else absolutely, they just don't care, you know, and, and you cannot teach to the two that want to learn math. Because the 10 that don't want to learn anything, and especially because you're a substitute, they destroy everything. And before you know it, it's ding, the bell rings, and everybody's gone. And they don't learn a thing. I got my check, so I was happy. You know, I got some money from it, but I realized this is a pointless waste of time. You know, it's better for me to come in here and, I don't know, play baseball with them or something, something else. But, you know, as a church, you can't, we cannot focus in our lives as Christians just on the 10 that just don't want to be here. Just turn them over to the Lord. Just let them go. In some cases, it's turn them over to Satan. Just let it go. Because there's some two, some three, some four that are getting ignored while we're spinning our wheels in the elementary things and we're not moving on. Uh, We have to provide teaching for people. We have to help people to grow up in Christ never losing the milk, never bringing people to Jesus. But not everybody that says the sinner's prayer actually repents. And not everybody that pretends like they're a Christian actually is a Christian. And the truth is, we just don't always know. So I don't really like to talk about the question of can a person lose their salvation or not. The plain text of Scripture says yes. Okay, But the, like I've said many times, there's that weeping and gnashing of teeth and Bottom line is I just don't want to find out what it is for my own life. And so I'm just going to minister to people like they're not going to lose their salvation. And I'm going to hold on to them because you can get into all these deep discussions about these things. But but again, there it is. Peter says it would have been better that they never got saved in the first place than having got saved that they betrayed Christ, that they turned away from him. Okay, so that's we're still on the scary part. We're going to get to the good part here in just a second. And we're almost done. So it says, going back over to Hebrews 6, it says here that it is impossible, right? It is impossible uh, to renew them in, into repentance. Um, I want to point something out here that I believe is, in the context of Scripture, uh, true. What it's saying is what I've been talking about. It's impossible for us to renew them under repentance. That does not mean that it's impossible for God to save them. I mean, you take this extreme case where Paul says, I turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But does not the sentence that is in there, he says, so that his soul might be saved in the, in the day of the Lord. So that he would be broken down so low that he would finally repent. But what Paul's saying is I can't do I wash my hands of this guy. I can't do anything with this guy anymore because I'm not God and I've got to take care of the church of God and we've got to move on. We've got to grow up. And God will take care of that person. You know, that that's that's in God's God's hands. So it's impossible, at least for us. Perhaps God can save them, but we should just realize that we don't need to worry about that. And we just have to take care of the sheep that God has given us. We have, to, we have to go on. We have to grow on up in Christ and realize that this is an impossible case for us. So do we ever meet with impossible cases? Yes, it says that we do meet with people that at least for us, right now, today, this is an impossible case. And so we need to move on. Our focus should be on Jesus and not just on these people. So now... In the little bit of time that remains, because I want to finish this, I need to do something that means you have to put on a thinking cap, and you have to think about grammar just for a minute, okay? But this is really important. So this sentence here um, that that begins, uh, this sentence that begins in verse 4, that's one sentence that goes from verse 4 all the way to the end of verse 6. And at least in my Bible, it's translated like one really difficult, complex sentence. Okay? It begins in verse 4, it ends in verse 6. And, and uh, in the epistles, there are many of these difficult sentences. Okay? Um, but this sentence in the Greek actually is written somewhat different than it's translated in the English. And oftentimes that difference is absolutely of no importance because it's just the way we think in English. But in this case, it's actually really important. So what it literally says, if you take it in the word order that it's written and grammatically the way it's written, okay? The first word in the sentence is the word impossible, okay? And where do we have that? In in my Bible, that comes way down in verse six. But it's actually the beginning of verse four, impossible. And so the it is is implied. So what we have here is it is the subject, if you can remember this from school. Is is the verb, and impossible is what's called a predicate adjective. Okay? It is impossible. That's how the sentence begins. And then it continues like this. It is impossible to again renew those into repentance. That's the main sentence. If you were doing those diagrams you used to do in school, I just know about this because my kids are homeschooled and they have to look at all this stuff all the time. I would have forgotten a long time ago about it probably, but I actually kind of liked it in school. But if you were diagramming this sentence, this would be the main sentence part of it. It is impossible to, again, renew those into repentance. And then you have this subjective phrase that describes something, okay? So what this is is these are all adjectives, okay? And all of these describe the person who it's impossible to renew again into repentance, okay? So there are, if you group them together, there are four qualities about this person. Number one, he has once been enlightened, and he has tasted of the heavenly gift. So it, it literally doesn't say and, it says even, having once been enlightened, even having tasted of the heavenly gift. Then it says, number two, and, the and means it's number two, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, number three, and having tasted the good word of God, even the powers of the age to come, and, number four, having fallen away, crucifying by themselves themselves, the Son of God, and putting him to open shame. That phrase right there, crucifying by themselves the Son of God and putting him to open shame, uh, later it said, trampling underfoot his, his blood, right? You're supposed to, when you read this, immediately be transferred to Golgotha. You're supposed to understand that what's being said here is You've joined the ranks of, I can never say Pontius Pilate again, but you've joined the ranks of Pontius Pilate. You know, you've joined the ranks of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've joined the ranks of the the Roman soldiers. You're standing there and you're cursing him on the cross. That You are now one of those who by themselves are crucifying the Son of God. In other words, you are a Judas Iscariot. You have betrayed Jesus Christ into the hands of, of sinful men. You're not a Peter who's failed because you're weak in the flesh. You are a Judas Iscariot who betrays Jesus Christ into the hands of sinful men. And strange as it may sound for us, one of the aspects of that is someone that when we get to chapter 10 we see this, someone who betrays the church, who betrays his brothers, who betrays his sisters. Okay, And so this is a traitor. Now, why did I bring out the grammatical aspect of that? Why, how this sentence is actually structured? Because this is, is really important. In my Bible, in my, in my English version, and in all English versions, it's written in such a way that at the end of it, you come to verse 6, and it says, and then have fallen away. Okay, If you'll notice carefully, the word then is written in italics, because it's not there in the original. It says, and then have fallen away it is impossible to renew them etc so what it reads like and the way we think we're supposed to read it when we read it like that in english without really thinking is that they cannot be renewed because they were such great christians and now they've betrayed christ okay but what it's really telling us is the person who cannot be renewed see the the having fallen away, and, and, and the, the, the negative parts of it, they're just there in the list with the positive parts uh, of, it, of it also. So all these eight, what they're called participles, all these eight adjectives that come into four different ca- categories, they, don't, they do not tell us why a person cannot be renewed. What they tell us is who exactly cannot be renewed who this person is. You know, Judas was always Judas, if you read the Gospels carefully. Not everybody knew that. Nobody knew it except Jesus. He knew it on the day he called Judas. But was Judas enlightened? Did Judas see signs, wonders, and miracles? Yes, he did signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus commissioned him. He went out and he cast demons out. Judas himself appears, when we read that, to be a really confused person. He has not really crossed the line yet that he crosses, but he was always that person who's the son of perdition, who betrays Jesus. That's just who he always was. So again, the question of, well, then maybe they never were saved. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. That's not in our our realm of authority that we can decide that. I only know this that if you could betray Jesus Christ and betray the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a traitor. It's who you are. You know, nobody says about a Benedict Arnold or something, well, he was a really good general up until he did that. No, you just like, he's just a traitor. That's just who he is. Because there are certain things that if a person can do that certain thing, then that's just a really messed up person. You know, I told you about this phone call we got and everything. And as soon as I got that phone call, I realized you have to take stuff like that serious because a normal person can't cross that line and even make a phone call like that. You know, a normal person could say, I'm going to punch you in the face, or I'm going to come over there and kick you or something because he's angry. But there are certain lines you cannot cross. And a person who betrays the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a person who betrays Jesus himself, then that's not, you know, that is a person who is a traitor. So this sentence describes for us who it is that cannot be renewed unto repentance. So this is really important for us because every one of you listening to this, you know that this isn't you. This is not who you are. okay? And that's actually why it's being written, so that they would read this and realize, ah, no, 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 that is not who I am. So that the mask would be taken off of it. You understand? That they wouldn't think that it's okay just to go do the emperor worship thing or to go rejoin the synagogue and, and go back down to Jerusalem and offer up all the sacrifices there in the temple and, and talk to people like that's going to save them and, not, and, and, and stop believing in Jesus. That they would realize that this is not a game. That you can't go the way of Judas you need to go the way of Peter and be restored and repent and, and come back. So this is the one who betrays Jesus Christ and the one who denies Jesus Christ before men. There are many ways to deny Christ. It can be done with words, but I think the worst way is when it's done with a person's life's life. And the words follow later. The words always follow later what's already been decided in the heart. So let me end by giving you this the, the hope part of this. The assurance of salvation part. The assurance of salvation that's being preached here is that you are not this person. And you don't have to be this person. You're better than this. And it says in verse 7, uh, about the ground drinking the rain and, and, and these things that are, are written there. Notice that it says, this ground that yields thorns and thistles, and this is very literal from the Greek, it says it is close it is close to being cursed. It is literally close to a curse, okay? You know what the word close means? <laughs> and this is a parent word. That word tells you what's being written here. It's like, you are this close, buddy, But if I'm this close, that means there's still hope for me, right? Because you wouldn't even be telling me this if I wasn't this close. You know, you're this close to being suspended from this school, but I'm not suspended yet, so I still have time. I still have a chance. This is actually a message of hope. It's not a message of condemnation. It's a message to say to you that you've been close, like Peter was close, that you can be restored. In verses 9 through 11, I'll just read them real quick. It says, but beloved, we, and this is where it sums up, We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. See, now comes the comfort part. (laughs) This hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm speaking in this way, but I'm speaking in this way because I really believe you're better than this. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And I'm going to end with that tonight. So God is not unjust. He forgives us of our sin. He does not forget our deeds. He does not forget the good fruit that we have. And if, there, if, if there's any good fruit in your life, if you can name one person that is with Jesus today because you've ministered to them, And I'm not saying, you know, that you preached before a stadium or something like that. But somebody that you've influenced for Jesus Christ. You've ministered to the saints. If there is some good fruit in your life and you know there is, well, that must mean that you're actually good ground, right? And it must mean that there's actually a good seed on the inside of you. You might be the puniest tomato plant in the garden, but if there's one good tomato this season... It means you're still a good tomato plant. Next year, it'll be better. Just hang on. Let's press on. Let's keep going. You need to realize that there's something good, someone good on the inside of you. So it says, we are convinced of something better, something that accompanies your salvation. And that is why we are writing to you in this way. In parentheses, after it says, that's why we're writing to you in this way, you might add, if we weren't convinced of this, we wouldn't be writing to you at all. We would have already checked you off the list. The very fact that you're getting the letter and getting this word means, and again, understand that this is God saying, God saying, Jesus saying, I am convinced of better things for you. I need to hear that word in my life. I don't want to stagnate at a level of maturity and say, oh, I've just arrived. You know, I'm just here. I'm just here. Because you can't, you know this, as soon as you stagnate, as soon as you stop, you just start rolling down the mountain. You, you can't, you can't stay there in that position for long. You've got to keep on going. You've got to keep on going and keep on growing in the Lord. Amen. So I went a little bit long tonight, sorry, but I needed to get through that whole passage. Okay? Amen. So let's stand and let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word this evening. I pray that you bless this word and that it would bring forth great fruit in our lives, Lord. Help us to leave the elementary things of Christ, the elementary things of the Word of God, not leave them in the sense of leave them in the dust, but to grow from them and to grow into the full maturity that you have for us, Lord. I think we're actually, we actually need this Word in our church. I don't think we're anywhere near where we should be today and where you want us to be, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to grow, Lord. Help us to have an ear to hear. Help us not to be lazy and sluggish, but to put the effort in to receive the solid food that you have for us. We hope you you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at youringtonvilliantfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF podcast.